Welcome to the Impact Medicom podcast. I'm your host, Anna Christofides. We are currently at the American Society of Hematology meeting in New Orleans, and today's episode focuses on the final analysis of the Alpine randomized phase 3 trial comparing xanabrutinib to ibrutinib in relapse refractory CLL. This study was chosen as a late-breaking abstract at ASH and presented by Dr. Jennifer Brown. Dr. Brown is the director for the CLL Center of the Division of Hematologic Malignancies at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and also professor of medicine in the field of hematologic oncology at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. We're excited to discuss the results of the Alpine study with her in this episode. Hope you enjoy it. So welcome, Dr. Brown, and thanks so much for joining us at the American Society of Hematology meeting in New Orleans. We're excited to discuss with you today your presentation of the final analysis of the Alpine trial of xanabrutinib versus ibrutinib for the treatment of relapse refractory CLL, which was selected as a late-breaking abstract. So congratulations and, uh, and welcome. Thank you. So the first question I had for you was, um, what was the reason for the development of the second-generation BTK inhibitors? following the success of first-generation molecules such as ibrutinib? Well, while ibrutinib was highly effective, I think there were clear areas for improvement. There's certainly a lot of toxicities. We know ibrutinib is not very specific for BTK. And, there, for example, the skin toxicity of ibrutinib is almost certainly an off-target toxicity. There's significant cardiac toxicity, bleeding toxicity. And so if a more specific drug could overcome that, that would be very good. It's very good. And then there's also the possibility for enhancing the extent and depth of BTK occupancy. The data with ibrutinib on BTK occupancy are not that extensive, but they do suggest that there's some lag, some downward lag in the trough occupancy values before the next dose over the 24-hour dosing interval. And so it, it may be that enhancing that and maintaining the occupancy throughout the dosing interval would improve the effectiveness as well. That makes sense. And so what are some of the key concerns? I mean, so you've mentioned a couple of the safety concerns with ibrutinib. How are these likely to be improved with the use of xanabrutinib? So that's interesting. We don't understand the cause of most of them, which means it can be challenging to know for sure whether any given particular toxicity would be improved, right? So I think we're most interested in the cardiac toxicity being improved. And we don't have a lot of data on the cause of that, although there is one nice paper, a preclinical paper that suggested that targeting CSK as the enzyme CSK is the cause of atrial fibrillation anyway, and abrutinib inhibits CSK, whereas anabrutinib much less so. So that's a plus in that regard. There are other assorted cardiac side effects that we don't know the cause of. For example, there's sudden death associated with abrutinib, there's hypertension. And we don't really know what the target enzyme is for those. So we don't necessarily know for sure whether they'd be improved by other drugs. The bleeding, I think, is at least partially due to BTK inhibition. So that is a class effect to some degree. Tech, inhibition of tech probably also contributes. So there could be some variability there based on whether the drug inhibits tech. The skin toxicity is probably EGFR. And so all the Newer drugs do not inhibit EGFR, and we do, in fact, see much, much less skin toxicity with them. And as similarly with the diarrhea of a brutinib. Great. Thank you so much for that really uh, um, descriptive uh, answer. That's very helpful. Thank you. So I'm just wondering if you could describe the design of the Alpine trial, and uh, what was the reason for the selection of the primary outcome of overall response rate? 
Right. Well, so it's a randomized phase three trial. It was open label and it was really open to an all-comer population of relapsed patients as long as they had not previously had a covalent BTK inhibitor. So it ended up enrolling patients with one prior therapy, which was generally chemoimmunotherapy. And the, the randomization was stratified by a number of factors, uh, the most important of which is probably 17P, P53 deletion, which is our highest risk factor. In terms of the primary endpoint, I think the overall response rate was really chosen to try and get an early readout. Xanabrutinib was perhaps a little bit behind compared to a calibrutinib, for example. And so there was an interest in trying to generate data quickly. And so in, in terms of progression-free survival itself, so how was this compared between groups, given that it wasn't the primary endpoint? And how can superiority testing be justified in this case? Right. Well, so the statistical plan clearly saved alpha for progression-free survival. And so this was a planned analysis with appropriate power and planned for this time point after 206 events had occurred. So that's how, basically. Yeah. It was a key secondary endpoint. Yeah, no, that makes that makes sense too. Um, and can you talk a little bit about the progression-free survival results uh, in both the all-comers and in the deletion 17P population? Right. So the progression-free survival results now with the median follow-up of 29 months show a 12% improvement with xanabrutinib compared to abrutinib. 79% of the overall population was progression-free. So that's really pretty significant at two and a half years, 10% difference. But, you know, I think what is even extremely, even more extremely notable is that there's a 22% difference in our highest risk group, the 17P group. So that really suggests that there is a definite efficacy benefit, I think. We see that anyway, when we look in the sub-analysis of the entire population for PFS, because about half of the difference is patients coming off for adverse events, and half of it is patients progressing. So there is a significant component of it that's people progressing while taking drug. But then the fact that that is even more evident in the high-risk patients, I think really underscores that there's an efficacy benefit. That makes sense. So in your, in your mind that you would see that as a clinically meaningful difference in both populations? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. Is there a sort of threshold? I'm just curious about what number you would put at that, where you would say, okay, this is clinically meaningful. Yeah, that's interesting. 5% is a little borderline, but I think most people would say 10% is significant. Great, great. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, just talk a little bit about the overall response rate uh, results uh, for the updated analysis, if you can. Well, so there's about a 10% improvement in overall response rate as well for uh, ZANU. It was 86% versus 76% for Rutinib. And that's complete response plus partial response. It does not include partial response with lymphocytosis, and that was really because of regulatory mandate. There are still pretty low rates of complete responses in both arms, which is totally expected. We don't see many complete responses at all with single-agent BTK inhibitors in the relapse setting. Yeah, that makes sense. And so can you talk a little bit about the difference that you saw in discontinuation rates? I know you hinted at that. Um, and then just your, uh, I guess, understanding or interpretation of the, how that might be related to the difference in efficacy. Right. Well, so covalent BTK inhibitors generally have to be given continuously to maintain response. But that's the plan, and that's how they're done. So that means that people who come off or whose disease progresses, they could have actual disease progression while taking the drug. 
Or alternatively, they could come off for an adverse event and then have subsequent disease progression. So how do we tell the difference? Well, so in this study, as I mentioned earlier, about half the patients did progress while taking the drug. And then about the other half came off for an adverse event with subsequent progression. And in fact, rates of treatment discontinuation for adverse events, as well as rates of interruptions and dose reductions were all lower with zanabutinib. But we also did a sensitivity analysis in which progressions that occurred within six weeks of a one-week hold of the drug were not considered as progressions. And the difference in progression-free survival was still significant. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, And so uh, just looking now at the safety data, can you discuss the difference in adverse events between the two groups? So it's the cardiac events that really stand out in my mind. There were well, first of all, atrial fibrillation was only about 5% with anabrutinib versus 13% with abrutinib. So that's a quite significant difference. And then there were also significantly fewer cardiac serious adverse events, fewer events leading to discontinuation that were cardiac, only one in anabrutinib versus 14 with abrutinib. And there were also six cardiac deaths on abrutinib, whereas there were zero with anabrutinib. And that really stands out to me as a really big difference. Many of the other side effects, neutropenia infection, were about the same. Diarrhea was less with xanabrutinib as well. Interesting. Uh, Okay. And and so those were the most notable differences in your mind. Were there any that were higher with xanabrutinib? Well, neutropenia was very slightly, but it was just 2 or 3% out of 20%. So it's not really that different. Hypertension, you know, people are pretty interested in hypertension as well. And that was pretty similar. I think it was a couple points higher with Xanu compared to Abrutinib, but it's also a late side effect. And so I think it's something that we're still going to want to see in longer follow-up because we do know Abrutinib tends to have continuously increasing rates of hypertension over time. In the Aspen trial, which was a different head-to-head trial of Xanabrutinib versus Abrutinib and Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, there was about half the rate of hypertension with Xanu compared to Abrutinib at 40 months. Although they had also seen it earlier too. So, you know, I think it's it's not clear why the hypertension results are not as different or not different compared to the other cardiac results, but longer follow-up will be interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Interesting. And so what do you uh, make of these safety results in terms of applying them to clinical practice in terms of monitoring and patient management and so on? I think that. I feel comfortable giving Xanabrutinib to even patients with quite significant cardiac comorbidities. I've already been doing it, actually, and not really had a problem. The patients to whom I would never have given Abrutinib, even if they had basically no other options. <laughs> so, so I think that that's one key point. And there, there was an update to the Abrutinib product label recently talking about sort of screening patients ahead of time in terms of their cardiac risk, you know, considering getting EKG or ECHO at the physician's discretion. You know, I, I do usually get an EKG on anybody for a BTK inhibitor, but I, I think you need to be much less worried about it with xanabrutinib than with abrutinib. That makes sense. Um, and is there anything that you would comment on, even though it's not a direct comparison to acalabrutinib? I, you know, I've had similar experiences with acalabrutinib in terms of its usability in patients with significant cardiac comorbidities. We had it had access to it a lot longer than Xanabrutinib, so I, I've had opportunity to get that experience. 
you know, obviously we don't have a head-to-head comparison of a calibrutinib and sanibrutinib and probably won't get one, I suspect. So, yeah. yeah, for sure. So based on the efficacy and safety data from this study and, you know, uh, data from other trials, uh, would you choose zanabrutinib over abrutinib? And also just talk about, you know, could you transfer this uh, to the first line setting? Right. So that's interesting. I, you know, I think unequivocally in this relapse setting, you would choose zanabrutinib because this is the patient population in which it's been shown to have a better progression-free survival than abrutinib, right? And the question isn't really so much versus a brutinib, it's more versus a calibrutinib, right? Where we don't have that head, head-to-head data. You know, I think I'm willing to translate it to the frontline setting, but it becomes a little bit more ambiguous because trials are so different, right? For example, we have data in the frontline setting with a calibrutinib and a benetuzumab with really phenomenal five-year progression-free survival rates of 84%. So if a patient's willing to have a benetuzumab and there's the possibility that might, say, speed up response, you know, maybe I'd still choose a cali for that patient. But if they're just going to have a single agent, you know, I'd probably choose Zanu because that's been compared head to head. My default would probably tend more towards Zanu. But like I said, that data with the cali is quite compelling as well. So, you know, we'll, we'll just have to see how these data sets mature over time. Also, if we can start to get institutional experience or real world experience of the different drugs, that would probably help too. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because it's all moving so fast, so it's, uh, which is a good thing too. But uh, yeah, um, so is there anything else that you wanted to add in regards to this trial or anything else? You know, I will say also, I think that the uh, data for 17P deletion versus abrutinib in this trial, together with the fact that we have the largest prospective cohort of 17P deletion frontline in Sequoia, even though it's not as mature as some of the other data sets yet. I think that that is also giving Xanabrutinib a leg up for the 17P population. Great. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much and I hope you enjoy Ash and I really appreciate you uh, joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Brown. My pleasure. Thanks.